Okay, so uh, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Uh, let's, to, to remind ourselves kind of the overall picture uh, of this book, Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians to deal with growing pastoral crises uh, in that congregation. His purpose was to, to recalibrate the, the life of the church so that they were once again on track and living in light of their calling. This letter deals with a host of issues, but the main areas are ministry, church discipline, uh, how to relate to one another, the Lord's Supper, worship, and the resurrection. So it addresses most areas of life. Uh, still, if we consider how the, the gravitational centers of this letter are the defense of Paul's ministry, church discipline, the Lord's Supper, and worship, well, we can see that this book is about the formal and institutional life of the church. This book is about church life, but it, it uh, centers, focuses on the formal activities that God has appointed for us to do as the church. So the first major portion of this book that we considered uh, in review last week uh, in chapters 1 to 4 was about Paul's apostolic ministry. Uh, the foundation of a gospel community. So the main problem regarding divisions uh, in the church is rooted uh, in divisions about people's preferences. The main point uh, that we covered last week was that Paul defended his ministry on the basis that the gospel itself has to be foremost, and God himself commissioned Paul to preach uh, as he did. Now, then, the second part of this book, uh, as we come to it tonight in chapters 5 to 7, addresses more specific aspects of division and controversy in the Corinthian congregation. So these chapters mark more formal features of church life according to the scriptures. Uh, it's interesting. I, th- I think it's very interesting, uh, at least. That the book that contains the sections uh, of scripture that are most appealed to in order to support uh, disordered worship in regard to things like speaking in tongues and prophecy and that kind of things later in the book, as I hope we we get to cover in in our services, uh, is the book that contains the longest or at least some of the longest reflection on formal church discipline. I think that's. Uh, at least some sort of irony, uh, perhaps a better way to put it, is God's uh, special providence for us. Uh, that, that indeed we see that worship in spirit and in truth is not something disordered uh, and disarranged. Uh, it is actually something tied to church discipline, uh, which is a good thing, as we'll consider in just a moment. So, so the main thing that I, w- I want to think about uh, in this time is that the Bible teaches that the church is real. The church is real. And I actually don't know that we think about that specifically enough. So the church is not just a nebulous group of people who decide that they like to be together on a given week. Uh, It is, rather, the association of, as Paul opened this letter, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have not decided that this is our group of people whom we like. Rather, God has called us together. God has drafted each and every church, congregation, whatever, however you might like to designate it for these purposes. God has drafted us from the ranks of the unbelieving world and assembled the group of people that he wants for himself in every particular place. You are in this church as a member as a or as a regular attender attached here because God wants you in this group of people, perhaps whether you want it or not. Right. Uh, God has then further made us responsible, not only to him, but also to one another. And he has appointed structures for the church to facilitate that exact accountability. Now, before uh, getting into the things of this text and, and working out church discipline uh, more, I, I actually want to underline a, a, a very special point, I think. Um, and that is that not all church discipline is negative. I think that's where we think uh, first, is that church discipline means, uh, you know, being barred from the table. Or church discipline means, you know, someone from the session addresses us in our sin. But that's not the case. Um, actually, we are always, always under church discipline, right? Discipline is like going to the gym to get stronger. It is like practicing an instrument or a language. Church discipline is for most people throughout their entire lives uh, that they that they are in the church. Only positive, meaning that, meaning that we sit under the preached word, receive the sacraments, and benefit from fellowship uh, to our strengthening, edification, and improvement. And only rarely, we hope, does discipline become negative or corrective. So discipline is always happening, and most of the time, it's very good. And a positive experience. I think that's something that uh, we need to remember more, honestly. Um, but as we come to our text and the, the issues of discipline that come out of there, the first issue that uh, raised need for this discussion, however, in Paul's letter, was sexual immorality. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul said that this offense among the congregation which apparently many of them were aware of, right, was serious enough that all of their personal reasons for pride, right, they had they had felt prestigious because they'd linked themselves to various teachers. All of their reasons for pride should be dashed 
and they should be ashamed and full of sadness because they had all gone along with permitting this heinous sin in their midst. In verses 6 to 8, he points out that even if the actions themselves uh, are limited to a small number of people, it actually has effects on the whole community. Sin is not a scab that stays remote and then heals. Sin is an infection that grabs hold and eventually seizes the whole nervous system, taking over the entire body and destroying it. In verses 9 to 13, we see that corrective church discipline, when enacted, is not trivial, right? It is not a mere discussion when it comes to its uh, last result. Um, it's not a mere discussion in hopes that someone will change course of action, uh, but then there are no real consequences, if someone refuses to, and right, we need to be careful to note this, if someone refuses to repent of obvious sin, then the whole community is to cut off entire contact with them. Paul said, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. So he's talking about someone who'd been in church membership. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. So note that some of these things uh, in the list are outward actions, uh, and yet some of them are heart-level sins. If a Christian, someone who bears the name of a brother, will not repent, well, once church discipline has been enacted in full, we are actually to cut off all social contact with that person. Here's the thing, though, and this is this is really crucial uh, as we think about this whole topic, uh, is, is that we do not have the individual right to decide when that happens. We don't get to uh, decide on our own when someone is, is shunned from the community, uh, and we certainly don't uh, have the right to sort of stir up uh, disapproval of another person to lead to that point. We cannot ostracize people that we don't like or that upset us for personal reasons. This uh, this cutting off has to be grounded in formal church actions, right? Verses 4 and 5 uh, tell us about this very plainly. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Right, so there's a, a specific use here of this phrase, in the name of Christ, uh, and, and its variations that we see throughout the New Testament. Uh, and this phrase and its variations indicates official churchly actions. Right, The assembly gathers in the name of Christ and conducts its official activities as the church, such as discipline, in that capacity. Right. So uh, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Paul invokes that same capacity for authority in the name of Christ, saying, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. The official, the official invocation of Christ's name is clear in connection to Paul's apostolic authority. So the churchly sense of operating in the name of the Lord extends to the, to the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. The apostles uh, were scolded uh, for speaking in the name of Jesus, Acts 540, uh, by, by the officials, right? Uh, the Sanhedrin gathered them up and, and rebuked them for speaking in the name of Jesus. Uh, preaching happens in Christ's name, Acts 9, 27 and 28. Baptism is in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Matthew 29, 19, which is often shortened. Uh, in scripture, but not in our use, right? To being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we see that in Acts 2, 38, uh, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 19. Uh, there's numerous examples of where it's shorthanded, but we shouldn't do that in our practice. Uh, the Lord's Supper is conducted in remembrance of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, 24, 25. The church has an official capacity to act in the name of Christ. Uh, in more specific regard to church discipline, then, the church uh, is then the place where Christ does his work through those whom he has commissioned uh, to work in his name. So we're going to read Matthew, five, uh, sorry, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Uh, I'm going to read it if you, if you want to take a second to, to turn over there. Uh, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. That seems to be the same effect as church discipline in 1 Corinthians 9. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three on earth ask about, about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For... Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Right, clearly, the overall point here is dealing with problems between Christians, which is something we'll come to in 1 Corinthians 6. But the later section about the church shows how clearly Christ works through the official capacity of the church in his name. Tell it to the church. If someone refuses to repent when individuals confront them, the church formally is involved. And now the church as the institution under the overseers is then in focus. And so in this respect, Christ gave what is often called the power of the keys to the church so that uh, discipline for the positive building up for uh, and for difficult correcting belongs to the formal capacity of church. And the reason uh, why what the church says is bound in heaven is 
Because we see here, because where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. So I think this is really important for our day and age. Uh, Christ's promise to be with two or three gathered is not about his mystical presence in an informal Bible study or, or hymn sing, but precisely about how when the church, no matter what size it is, gathers formally in his name to do the things that he has commanded us to do, he is personally present then and there to work through those activities, such as preaching, discipline, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians, this assembly hands an unrepentant person over to Satan in the hopes of inducing repentance and restoration. But this is an action of the church. We cannot shun people personally. The church is supposed to do this as the final action of the assembly, the corrective discipline. And that point carries us into the next chapter. Right? Uh, chapter six, and so in chapter six, verses one to 11, Christians are suing one another. Now, notice carefully, if you've got your Bible there open, and I, I hope you do, notice carefully in verse two, that these are trivial cases. Okay? Trivial cases, which is important on two accounts. First, it shows how godless these Christians are behaving uh, in caring more about trivial things. Trivial things than each other. Or about Christ's glory. They were suing each other over trivial matters. This wasn't criminal action. This wasn't uh, any sort of uh, thing that we would rank as felonies or probably even misdemeanors. They were just bothered with each other, and so they decided to sue each other. Paul said the church ought to be handling these situations, stepping in to resolve disputes like the, like these, these trivial matters, whatever they may be, among believers. So the church, again, if we get, come back to our main point, the church is real. The church is supposed to do something. Uh, and if there are trivial matters between believers, we don't go somewhere else to fix it. We fix it in the church. Second, though, right, the second big import from the fact that this is trivial cases is the fact that uh, these are trivial cases hi- highlights also the limits of the church's authority. So there's a, a limit here. These, like I said, these are not criminal offenses. There have been, in recent years especially, we have seen this over and over and over. There have been far too many appeals to, I am guessing, this passage, right, to help church leaders cover up sexual or financial scandal. We're supposed to deal with this. Don't take it to outside authorities. That sort of situation, however... Uh, if there's no, especially if there's no repentance involved, is supposed to be public as the church hands them over to Satan in the assembly. And then, since they are no longer church members, uh, any sort of ju- judicial proceeding would obviously apply anyway. The church, however, is, I mean, you see that, right? Trivi- trivial cases are for the church. If someone is engaged in criminal activity, that's not within our jurisdiction. They go to the authorities. And 
if they're unrepentant, they come under church discipline as well. The church is, however, supposed to be the first point of appeal for personal disputes and moral issues, individually, then one or two, and then the church. So chapter 6, 12 to 20 circles back again to address that moral issue of sexual immorality. Paul's point was to remove all excuses for letting immorality continue. Our Christian identity is such that we cannot join ourselves in immorality. That's that's what he's after. But on the other hand, he wants to make the point, when we come to chapter 7, he wants to make the point that marriage is not immoral. There there have been all these, these issues of actual immorality that they have permitted without enacting discipline. And now they're worried if they should uh, enact discipline on people because they're married. And clearly they have it backwards. Uh, Although sex outside of marriage needs to be, we need to flee from that. Sex inside marriage, uh, according to the first verses of this chapter, must be embraced. Must be. Uh, this, This chapter, however, also points out that we are to live as we were called, especially in verses 17 to 24. Although our identity is in Christ, does not mean we have to change jobs, career paths, or anything like that. There's not supposed to be something like a a Christian subculture where we all do certain jobs in the community as Christian banking or Christian plumbing or Christian carpentry um, or Christian whatever. Uh, you know, the commune lifestyle. The commune lifestyle provides no opportunities to love our neighbor. So it should be entirely rejected by those who study the New Testament or who who are part of the church, uh, even if they haven't studied uh, the New Testament yet. So the big payoff of these chapters, right, is that the church is real. And we need to see that the church is the, is a, a structural community of our lives. Too often the world thinks, uh, and Christians sometimes buy into this, that the church is for entertainment, right? As if some people like to hear stand-up comedians on Saturday and other people like to hear sermons on Sunday. That's not the role of the church. It's not an entertainment industry. It's not a consumer uh, market. The church is our family. God has called us to be Christians. God has called us to be saints together in a church. And God has called us on the Zoom call into this church to be saints together. The church is our family. It is the place where we are strengthened in walking with God. It is the place where we encounter the Lord. It is a genuine community. Now, specific churches provide that community as well, right? LCPC is my church, my church community, and yours. But, right, to to use myself as the example, uh, if I'm spiritual guidance, spiritual guidance, which is, is not the same thing as buying a house and that kind of thing. So again, there are limits on church authority. But if I need spiritual guidance, I'm not going to anyone besides Andy, Dick, Gabriel, or Adam. 
right? These are the elders that God has put in my life to lead me. So I go to them. I, right, I, I've been thinking in the past few weeks, uh, since since we've seen various vows being taken in, in a few different capacities, uh, I've been thinking about my membership vows a, a lot. And, and it has struck me more profoundly uh, in recent weeks that I promised God, right? I, I promised God, I try to keep that list short. I've promised God things in my wedding vows, uh, in my ordination vows, uh, and in my church membership vows. I'm not looking to, to make the thing, the list of things that I've promised God I will do very long, because that's a dangerous thing to do. I have promised God and all of you in my membership vows to submit to the discipline of this church and to support this church's worship and work. So I'm not going to support the worship and work of any other church unless it overlaps with ours, because I promised God otherwise, right? My vows, as I understand my vows, I've prayed through them and considered them over these years, mean that I don't have the freedom to, to do that. I, I decided to, to make these vows to you and to God, right? It was voluntary. I didn't have to do this in a sense. I wanted to be in this church. I did, and I want to be in this church. So I made a promise to God, and now I'm bound to it. Right? That's a serious thing to be bound to God in promise. Clearly, right, there's the limitations on it. Spiritual guidance. Uh, there are people who are wise in all sorts of fields within the church, and, and they can help you if, if you need to seek their advice on that. But the, the leaders, as the leaders of the church, are not qualified to advise on every matter. R right? So we're not there to to give you advice about, you know, how to do stocks or, you know, build a house, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, we don't have absolute authority by any means. But as I took vows to this church, I obliged myself, if for no other reason, to honor that authority. And the point is, though, right, if we circle back, that we just need to, we need to take seriously that the church is real. It actually has a role to play in our lives. It is a concrete community. It's not a sporting event that, that we buy a ticket to when we want. And I, I don't think that anyone uh, on this call thinks otherwise than, than what I've said. This is not addressing a problem uh, amongst us. It's just making something overt that should be a joy to all of us who agree. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. We are free to trust ourselves to the church because God has appointed these people, the people you see in the gallery view in, in front of you, if that's how you're watching. Um, we're free to trust ourselves to our church because God has appointed these people for us. We are called not just to Christ, but to this church to be together. That's a wonderful thing. And just as there were disagreements in Corinth and divisions, uh, we can be comfortable when not everyone sees uh, everything just like we do or has the same preferences because God has given us these people, despite the fact that they have different opinions. 
These are our people because God has called us to be part of this group of people. It is a beautiful thing to, to know that uh, we have to get along and love each other. Right? That's, uh, it's a wonderful comfort uh, to know I have to forgive you. Right? It, it takes the pressure off you, if you ever do anything to me, that you can come and apologize in a minute because I have to forgive you. And it takes the pressure off me deciding whether I'm going to hold a grudge or not because it's not my right. I have to forgive you. It's a wonderful thing. Right? And that, of course, though, that that is where we transition to the gospel because that very thing, the fact that we are bound to one another and that we have to find the ways to continue in love with one another is grounded in the gospel. Ephesians 4, verse 32 be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and, and then note this part, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now what is that what is what is that about? Why am I emphasizing that? We look to Christ for how to forgive one another and for the forgiveness of our own sins. That part is probably not shocking or new. Uh, this verse though is a guilt trip which I think is is how sometimes people first think of it. It is not as though God is saying, forgive because I have, and now you just need to do it. Forgive one another. Uh, The verse says, forgive one another as, or uh, to paraphrase that or stretch it out some, forgiving one another in the same way that, God in Christ forgave you. Now, right, God forgives you by looking at Christ's cross and accepting his death as full satisfaction for sin. And so, too, in the same way, not because of our moral fortitude or our greater Christian maturity, but we, too, forgive each other knowing that justice has already been served against the sins committed against us if they were sins committed by believers. Christ has borne the penalty for those sins. Justice has been enacted. We don't need to stretch it out any further. Further, we look to Christ for our own forgiveness. When we are unfaithful in any way, or even when we are involved in divisions, disputes, disagreements, whatever it might be in the church. We know that Jesus Christ has earned our right standing before God. And when we all stand equally before God, as people who need the forgiveness of sins, who are forgiven sinners, doesn't that level the playing field between us? Why, why would I hold anything against you? Why would you hold anything against me? We're struggling through this life together, right? And we all have the same Savior who meets the same need that we all have. Forgiveness of sins, acceptance with God, and grace or help in time of need.
Um, we will pray and we'll sing. Father God, it's difficult to keep your church discipline at times, sometimes because it seems so formal, sometimes because uh, it is uncomfortable to think that we uh, are under authority. Uh, and yet it's a beautiful thing that you have. Man has not invented the authority that we are under as Christians. You have instituted your church. And so we trust ourselves easily into your providence and into your wisdom. As you have created the church, you continue to create the church by your word. You build the church by your word. You call us to be saints together, not just saints individually, but saints in our own congregation together. That's a wonderful thing. Help us to appreciate that truth more and more. Help us to love one another more and more. And as we can't be in each other's homes or see each other in person, help us to yearn for each other. Help us to find ways to to show our care and affection. And we, of course, pray that you would keep us pure as a church. And as we consider this matter of, of discipline, we pray, God, that we don't have cases where discipline has to be enacted, but indeed people realize uh, that the church is a place for sinners and sinners need to repent. So help us to be that repentant sinners who are eager for grace, eager to give grace when people wrong us and help us to remember that as we look to Christ, who is the foundation and the source of grace. And so we pray in his name. Amen.